and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbo's most underappreciated work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Warhouse. And we are back into plot this uh, this two days. Is there a word <laughs> yeah. for that? Um, we're back with the main story, back with our, our favourite three characters, Blake, Rose and Maggie. And they're all sitting in the library. Maggie's reading a book. Yeah. And it's a good way to start the chapter. Um, Maggie is clearly loving where she is right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's sort of a recurring thing she brings up in this chapter that she's just desperate for knowledge. Um, mm. How desperate, Elliot? Is she desperate enough to do something crazy? Well, we'll find out later. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but I like, we get this little thing um, where the three books Maggie's kind of skimming through are the three books we saw excerpts from uh, in the previous interlude. And yep. uh, after 1.x, which was Rose's diary, uh, I think it was probably the very next chapter, we had a little throwaway line from uh, Rose talking about how she'd skimmed through Rose Senior's diary. <laughs> yep. So like, it's just a little thing, and I don't really know why why I like it so much, but just this little thing of like tying those page into it so they're not just like cherry picked random excerpts but they're like cherry picked little excerpts of what these characters have skimmed past just somehow yeah connects them a lot better and, and i like it uh, yeah i don't know it's 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 well, nice you, you get the sense that we're kind of having the same reaction that maggie is reading this very same thing that we read you know last chapter yeah yeah um yeah uh, so i, I want to call out uh, maybe one specific note that you left here elliot saying Maggie is just so delightful. That is an opinion I maintain all chapter. <laughs> yep. Uh, I will probably have to defend that more uh, in a couple of minutes, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I also pulled out two specific lines, uh, just one where Rose says, this is exhausting, watching every word you say and watching every word others say. And uh, my response to reading that line was just, yep, like it would be. Um, yep. like, you know, we're kind of doing it for fun and, and a couple of hours every week, but like with your life <laughs> on the line, this would be, you know, and like, we see this, like, this is a pretty friendly conversation for most of this chapter, but Maggie's just never quite answering questions. And, um, I think yeah. Blake specifically calls that out in another line later, but it's just, it would be so exhausting to talk to these people. Yeah. And, uh, Blake and Rose are clearly getting frustrated at the way this world works. Uh, we yeah. pulled out another line here, which is just a, a thought from Blake where he thinks I was getting damn tired of people who didn't answer the questions they were being asked. Um, yeah. Blake. Yeah. When, uh, with all this karma stuff and, and, you know, like having to commit to something that you state, like everyone's kind of got a good reason for yeah. being so non-committal about everything, but to be so bloody frustrating to work with. Yeah. Um, it must be so easy to just think, well, the easiest way to do it is to never be honest and never be like vulnerable about any of it. Yeah. Right. Like then there's literally no risk, um, which makes sense, but it's also <laughs> yeah. frustrating for a number of reasons. Um, so, Basically, Maggie has. They have a little bit of talking about um, Maggie wanting to kind of negotiate a way for her to access the library yeah. more. But before they dive into that, we Maggie kind of gets sidetracked. I guess just kind of being nice to them and and handing out info as a as a, a bit of a sign of good faith. I suppose she talks specifically about Molly a bit and how Molly went being a practitioner. Yeah. Which is 
like this was really fun to reread like uh like obviously we sort of have to read the chapters twice for this podcast or at least i do once to just experience it then yeah. once to really like go in and, and have a close eye and this conversation was really fun yeah. to reread um because it's so recontextualized <laughs> by what we find out at the end of the chapter um and like yeah it's so well you know said by molly and so well written by Wildbow, like Nothing in her sort of statements threw up any alarm bells for me the first time through. And then you're reading it knowing what we know at mm-hmm. the end, that, that, that she's the one who killed Molly, um, or, you know, called the attack that killed Molly. She she doesn't quite yep. lie, and it's it's she walks that line so well, and I just... Yeah, it was so it was so fun to reread this conversation, and I and I feel like there's probably going to be a hundred times in this book where I'm going to want to jump back like a few chapters or something and reread <laughs> conversations uh, for stuff like this. Yeah, the thing I liked the most about this part is the different tone that it takes on once you've read the chapter yeah. the first time versus the second time, right? Um, because Maggie is endearing herself to Blake here to to Blake and Rose. She is. Talking about Molly because Molly, you know, is someone that Blake cares about. I mean, it's just, I sort of had a different reaction. I, I sort of genuinely believe that Maggie's quite remorseful about the part she played and is sorry. And I very much saw this, like, she's the one who points out, like, oh, is that Molly's stuff? And it almost feels like she brought up Molly just because it's something that's on her mind and, you know, maybe even something she was yeah. thinking about getting off her chest. Probably she wasn't actually going to be able to do it, but. No, like, I, it, I got this sense of, like, the way she brings Molly into the conversation, the first time I just read it as, like, a oh, random friendly act, whereas this time it was more like she's just, it, she wanted to talk a bit about Molly to assuade her guilt or something. I do agree that she's genuinely remorseful. I think that point comes quite clearly across throughout the chapter, but I think, I don't know, it, it, she really does ride the line. Um, specifically, we, we get to the part later where, it becomes explicitly clear that she didn't come here to, you know, make amends or anything. She came here to gain knowledge and then kind of almost as if a rom-com, <laughs> this was a rom-com, it, it started out that way, but it, it now it's so much more, you know, in the five <laughs> minutes that they've known each other. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. And that makes me less, you know, I do, of course I like her as a character, but it makes me like her less, keeping that in mind. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> let's let's continue ahead. Uh so Molly kind of starts giving information about goblins, um, which we come to find out are a topic that she she knows quite a lot about. Uh specifically she talks about how goblins like to operate outside of urban areas, preying on people who are having bad days and making those bad days worse. Yeah, she basically seems to imply that the uh like the reason um like wealth inequality is persists in the world of pact especially because of things like goblins like if Mm. you're poor you're just easier to prey on for these things and it means you're sort of always having bad luck and you can never quite get on your feet yeah i think in the real world these cycles are already quite vicious and we see in the pact world that uh it's even worse because there are literally supernatural entities making these cycles more literally vicious yeah um so i blake has a Blake has an interesting reaction to hearing this. He basically flashes back to two individual times when he was having a bad day and people came along and made it worse. And he kind of thinks, reliving this memory, he thinks something was off about the people in these memories. And at the time I brushed it off, but now that I'm awakened and I know this about goblins, 
he doesn't fully make the connection, but it's obvious that he is making the connection in his mind. The- <laughs> they were goblins or he thinks they were goblins well he's unsure if it's just like his memory twisting like you know especially traumatic memories can have a bit of a way of you know blowing themselves up and stuff in your head um or or, you know so switching out details like that so he he doesn't really land either way he thinks his mind's probably playing tricks on him and like that's probably where i'd lean to like i i wouldn't put this past like fuckwit teenagers um or something but um mm. given what he's been going through in the last week he's well within a position to want to recontextualize everything that's ever happened to him so um i get why he's mm. wondering this i just don't know where i land on it i think it's an interesting thing to sort of think about yeah um yeah i, I don't know if i land on it being uh being actually goblins or blake just kind of being wishful thinking but i think what's interesting about this is blake flashes back to his trauma and then almost immediately afterwards, we have Maggie kind of dropping hints at her background, her trauma-related background, right? Yeah. Um, she kind of <laughs> she kind of describes how she's basically become the Batman of goblins, where <laughs> goblins messed up her town, and now she's reincorporating goblins as a symbol to strike fear into the heart of, you know, Gotham. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so what was interesting is um, <clears throat> something you've written here is, like, whether it's uh, that sort of trauma like turning that trauma in her past into something she's controlling whether that's so dramatic that it's um you know like an like something that makes her more powerful or better at it because of like karma Mm. or you know the the spirit's love for the dramatic and i'd never thought of that but as Mm. soon as you as soon as i saw you'd written that here i was like yeah i'm like that's that i'm 100 percent on board for that Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we still we have a better idea of how some of these things work in the short term, but do dramatic long-term narratives work better? Who knows. Uh I guess one other thing that we should just point out here because it ties back into a I guess a theme from this chapter so far is Maggie kind of reflects on how it seems eerie that Rose disagrees with Blake on things from time to time. Um and in her experience yeah. she she kind of thought that Rose would be more of a subservient vestige but she's actually got a real personality and rose's response is oh we're not giving any information up on that it's kind of a sore point sorry and blake thinks sore point (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) really blake like (laughs) yeah um like this is a this is a surprise to you like really um yeah this is (laughs) it's getting to the point that it's kind of comical that blake is so (laughs) unaware of all these story beats that have been happening to basically you know telegraphing the the conflict that hopefully will or maybe will come between rose and blake yeah i i mean you know if if i wanted to really put my tinfoil hat on for now i could say that it's partially a sore point because of all this stuff about how she's gonna have to replace him and she doesn't want to talk about that because that is a sore point Mm. um if it exists but yep. I think, really, it, this is more a testament to just how out of it Blake is. Like, you know, this whole chapter is just him, like, you know, he makes himself a little sandwich out of, like, moldy bread just because he, <laughs> he needs something to eat. Um, he's oh, just wrecked. <laughs> and so I, I'm le- I'm willing to let him chalk a bit of this up to he's just really messed up at this point. But, uh, mm. yeah. Yeah, he's still very exhausted from the activities of this chapter. Um, so Maggie and Blake kind of get, and, and Rose, I suppose, I put a bit of a Blake there, um, <laughs> they, they get back to the, uh, talk, discussing Maggie's access to the library more often. Um, and so Blake and yeah. Rose kind of get close to an agreement about being happy to give her access 
as well as, you know, giving her the council meeting deal where they won't set demons on her if she offers them something every time she visits. So, you know, some power, a trinket, something. Um, and Maggie seems pretty eager to, to take this deal. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty fair deal to me. It depends on exactly what Maggie's offering and what books they give her. Like, you know, there's probably room for either party to try and, like, fuck yep, it up. To but, pull some shenanigans. Um, assuming you're on friendly terms, this seems like a decent arrangement. Um, but I guess, yeah, so Blake is just not really trusting his current mental state, which I think is very fair. Um, mm. Probably the most sensible thing he does all chapter. Um, and... <laughs> wants to get it in writing and do it later. So he's basically sort of saying Maggie should just head off and, and like maybe he'll sort it out within a day or something. Yeah, um, but yeah. she she really doesn't like this. <laughs> <laughs> she made the comments before about feeling blue uh, when people dangle, you know, knowledge in front of her. But, uh, yeah, she, she really seems to take it hard. She gets quite angry about it, actually. Um, yeah. It's, it does seem to come out of nowhere to an extent, right? They seem to touch some sort of nerve um, related to, um, like, the fact, like, they sort of call her out for hanging out with bad people, like Johannes and stuff, and that's when she really blows up. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, like, this may tie into what we find out at the end of the chapter. Like, she says that she doesn't like working with the Bahames and, and the Duchamps anymore because they, like, met, like they fucked her over um, mm. with this whole Molly thing a little bit. Um yeah. So it could be it could be related to that, but it definitely seems to be a, a bit of a bit of a sore point for her, um, discussing her allies and friends, yeah, or lack thereof. Um, so Blake basically forces her to take a time out, <laughs> um, <laughs> and and they kind of sit in silence and consider the deal and cool down. And Maggie clearly is feeling pretty remorseful after this. Um, you know, not just at the fact that she blew up, but also because she possibly is ruining her chance at library access here. Uh, and so she kind of offers a show of good faith, giving them a, a trinket, a little paper thing <laughs> that uh, <laughs> contains the spirit of like a, a goblin that they can, you know, detonate to get, you know, some extra firepower if they need it. Yeah, it sounds like it's basically a piece of paper and you, you throw it and a goblin comes out and you know attacks whoever it's pointed at. Yep. Um, which is pretty cool. And there's a great little line because um, he also shows her the hatchet he's put June in. And she calls it an axe, and he calls her out and says, no, it's a hatchet. And yeah. she's like, oh, oh, that's just semantics. Um, And it ties, like, uh, my brain immediately went there, and so did Blake's, uh, where he just thinks of Paige. Mm. And I'm hoping that that's foreshadowing her appearance uh, in the next arc, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess I, I'm expecting in the next arc somebody, either his friends or family from his previous life, are going to start to show up. But I, I would like to see Paige again. I liked I thought she was fun in the first chapter. Fair enough. Um, I think it's, yeah. <laughs> I, I, one other <laughs> thing I want to call attention to is I like how every time someone m misnames, uh, <laughs> misnames June's axe or hatchet, you know, um, Blake immediately corrects them. It's happened multiple times so far, <laughs> and it really yeah. does. Like, you know, the reason he does that, at least in my interpretation, is because he is kind of trying to pay respect to june um which really like brings home the point that he he really does see her still as a kind of sentient thing he really hasn't kind of got around to just seeing her as a tool which is great yeah it's a great kind of character beat for him i think he started doing it even before she hopped in or maybe it was right after she hopped in but he did it to to rose as well she called her an axe and he's like it's a hatchet it yeah. just seems like um 
I don't know, it, it must just be like one of his pet peeves or something, because he doesn't seem too fussed about semantics generally, although like that's yeah. changing now, obviously, because um, it's so, like, <laughs> his, life, his life depends on it. But um, that seems to be one that I feel like he'd be doing it even if he wasn't a practitioner. Like if people yeah. called an axe, he'd be like, no, it's a hatchet. Um, well, yeah, maybe there is a bit of that where he's like just more used to these kind of tools and that gives him the, yeah. the pedanticness about it. Um, yeah, exactly. Anyway, there's there's little hints here through through the, this thing with the Ofuda that um, it's, it hints at the, the ways that uh, being a practitioner is different in other cultures. Um, last chapter, we got the these hints that the idea of a familiar implement domain as, as this like trio was a very Western idea of how to be a practitioner. And we yeah. we get more hints of that, of, of other kind of options here, which is, you know, who knows if it'll be relevant, but it's very, it's very interesting <laughs> at the very least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it kind of makes sense that, you know, after humanity spread across the globe and, and sort of lost contact, that different sort of standards would have arisen, um, you know, throughout the world. Yep. Uh, and, and this also, I think, explains part of why I think the Thorburn val- uh, library is going to be so valuable. Because um, Rose's mum, like you know, spent all this time in that interlude, uh, just running around the world collecting books, which is probably a really smart thing to do because that would give you so much cool insight into what else is possible and other avenues to take things. Like I feel like that that is something that could be such an asset uh, to sort of catch people off guard. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so Blake kind of heads off to, he kind of seems to get distracted almost. Oh, he tunes out yeah. and then just goes to like, go get something and says, Oh, Hey, I'll be right back. Heads off and grabs a fine chain and then kind of comes back downstairs and there's a visitor at the front door. It's Laird and he's pissed off. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can't help but wonder if karma was somehow involved in this. I don't really know exactly what that achieves, but because mm. um, you're right, he just sort of zones out and he's not even really thinking about the hair when he just gets up and he's like, oh, I'm going to go to my grandma's room and he gets this locket and it's not until he's down the stairs that he really thinks this will be great for hair. So mm. he's just kind of Yeah, he like, doesn't really know what it's for, right? It's it's weird. Yeah, he, he like it. it's so subconscious that it almost feels like something pushing him away um which and and then obviously he comes down just as laird arrives so the timing yeah. of that i don't i don't really get what this achieves but it it seems like something may have been involved there something's yeah. going on yeah um anyway so laird's at the front door he he knows that it was blake he's come to basically say hey blake remember how we kind of had that temporary ceasefire i mean i was fucking you over but you know we were kind of cool well not anymore um now i'm going to fuck you up which, I mean, you know, like, this is exactly what they were expecting, right? Like, this was the obvious follow-up to what just happened. So yeah. um, I kind of like, like, Blake points out a number of times in this conversation how, like, Led's trying to rile him up or, like, offend him, but he's too <laughs> he's too tired to give a he's shit. He's just too tired, um, yeah. Like, like, he doesn't have to try and, and play it cool because he's too tired not to. And he, So he's just sort of standing there listening to Led and thinking, thank God I'm too tired to do anything about this because it's making me seem really cool. Mm. Yeah. Um, so Blake plays it cool. Led basically says two things. One, I'm going to retaliate. It will probably be tomorrow and it will be bad enough that you will really regret it. Oh, and I love this little tidbit as well that, Blake's going to know, wait, or Blake's going to notice it within a day or whatever, but he won't really see the 
the ramifications. I should have pulled out the line, but there's basically a, a bit where Laird says, you're going to yeah. see it, but you're not going to really appreciate how bad it is until it's too late. <laughs> and I'm very excited to see what this weird attack vector... I'm, I'm imagining this is going to be some attack vector I haven't even considered, and I can't wait to see mm. what it is. Um, well, we'll see. And the second <laughs> thing that Laird says is, uh, hey, also, is that Maggie in there? Well, guess what? It was Maggie who killed Molly. Um, she was acting on orders of the council in exchange for information. Set set your, her goblins onto Molly. Um, and Maggie basically tries to explain that, that she thought Molly was just a, a scary diabolist and when she actually kind of saw the attack being carried out, she regretted it immediately and unsuccessfully tried to take it back. But Blake doesn't really go for it. Um, he gives her back the Ofuda, which is very uh, <laughs> strongly hinted that uh, the goblin inside <laughs> yep. was used in Molly's murder. Oh, not just that. The, the uh, Ofuda was... Uh, it also is implied that the uh, Ofuda is what she was rewarded or what she was given well, for attacking Molly. Um, yeah, it, at least part of the, the, you know, reward for carrying out this murder was the ability to know more about Ofuda. Um, yeah. Potentially how to, how to make them. Uh, now, I yeah. mean, this could, this could all be part of my desperate attempt to build a narrative where Maggie isn't really the bad guy in this situation. Um, but it does seem like she, she wasn't really that informed. Like, she kind of, I think she dove in headfirst because she was just being greedy and didn't want all the details and like yeah. it even sounds like the attack wasn't meant to be lethal and she actually fucked that up um mm. which is a sort of important detail but yeah there's there's so much cool stuff going on here like maggie seems genuinely remorseful and there's all these details that make me think things just kind of got out of control and it wasn't meant to be this bad but also i don't blame blake for like hating her for it especially when you consider that he point blank asks her, uh, were you more here to make it up to me or because you wanted stuff for yourself? And she just sort of doesn't answer, which is basically, uh, yeah. I was here more for myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's easy to think if I was in Maggie's situation and I heard about a very scary diabolist, like, okay, maybe I could be convinced to do something like this, but I don't, I don't yeah. know. Like Maggie's been in the world for six months, you know? Mm. Five months charitably when this attack was carried out. Um, not even. Blake has been in this world for, you know, not long. A week. <laughs> a week, two weeks. Uh, if that, and if yeah. Laird ca- if Laird came up to Blake and said, hey, we'll we'll pay you some knowledge and power to, to go kill this person. Oh, they're really, they're bad. Don't worry about it. I mean, you know, Blake wouldn't go for it. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, it does seem like, I, I kind of don't blame her for, you know, hearing, oh, scary diabolist and, you know, we just want you to mess her up and thinking, oh, yeah, that seems okay. Mm-hmm. And then, but then also you kind of like, well, you should have gotten more info. So, yeah, it's just a messy situation. Yeah, I, I don't see a world where Maggie takes Laird or the Duchamps or really anybody at their word, right? Like, I think it's fair to expect a level of responsibility yeah if you're going to carry out an attack on somebody because someone that you almost certainly know is untrustworthy has told you to right like i don't know yeah but what maggie's like 16 or something i don't know like you know it's true it's true she acted a bit rashly um yeah anyway (sighs) well that's the end of the chapter it kind of ends on that on on blake kicking her out and (laughs) uh the, the the ship of mag lake sinking see that's funny i've been calling it blaggy in my head Blaggy, which yeah. uh neither of those are good names 
Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this chapter obviously is about Maggie being endearing, right? Like, <laughs> uh, the, basically, the whole way through, she's very endearing to, to Blake, to us, the audience, and then we get the ending. We get Maggie revealing that, oh, you know, that thing that you've kind of been, has been on your mind, that kind of heinous act which kicked off this thing, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> like, it's an yeah. interesting chapter. Twists the knife a bit. Um. Yeah. Uh, and, like, it, it's just a good old-fashioned, like, after having sort of the, the action scenes that have been sort of dominating the previous chapters and then the sort of Miss Lewis, uh, like, exposition-heavy uh, thing, this is just, like, some good old-fashioned character development. Like, it's all... Yeah. Characters interacting, like we have Blake being so tired that he's basically a passenger sometimes. Um, Maggie's kind mm-hmm. of this fun new wild card we're learning about throughout the chapter. And then Rose is just constantly kind of being a dick to Maggie and we don't fully understand why. Um, <laughs> but it, it's like a fun little dynamic that balances out the, the chapter really well. It's, it's great. Something else I liked about this chapter is Laird comes in and delivers knowledge to Blake that he has been looking for for ages, right? Like... Mm. It would be very easy for Laird to earn some face with this, but he's just so fucking smug about the whole thing. <laughs> I, yeah, his, <laughs> like, re- his reward for giving Blake this valuable piece of information is just how much it like messes with Blake. Like he, yeah, yeah. he was more than content oh. with just getting to fuck Blake over. Yeah, he even says something to the effect of, I'm going to tell you this, but I don't want to take your deal. So I refuse <laughs> your deal. Here's this, yeah. like... Man, he's such a he's such a jerk. Uh, <laughs> he's fun to hate. Um, I guess that brings us to the end of the chapter. Yeah. Um. So for our little bonus bit, our little bonus content this uh this chapter, we wanted to talk a bit more about implements. Um. And you know, we talked for forty minutes about the last chapter, but I guess it wasn't <laughs> enough because we have still still more things that we want to talk about. Um. We want to talk about. I think it would be a fun thing to just kind of theory craft implements for ourselves. Maybe this is something we can yeah. do in the discussion thread for this for this episode as well. Um, yeah, I'd be interested, and, and you know, we'll probably try and talk about this at the end of the the next uh, episode. Like, uh, if if people in the you know, as a sort of discussion question, if you want to talk about like an implement that you think would suit you, or if if that gets too personal, because we've gone and done ours, and it turns out it's a very personal exercise. Yeah. Um it is quite a personal exercise. Yeah. Do a celebrity or a fictional character, I, I, I don't know, whatever you're comfortable with. But it, it, it's a lot of fun sort of sitting down and trying to come up with something that symbolizes uh, you or, or someone and how you operate. Yeah. Um, so I'll go first, I guess, Elliot. I'm just going to take sure. it. And the, the thing I liked about this is we both kind of ended up coming to the same approach about this, which is kind of <laughs> the CV writing approach where you basically think, what are my character strengths and what are my like weaknesses, you know? Yeah, I very much sat down and was thinking, how do I like go at, at like when I'm at work or when I was at university, what worked for me and what didn't? And um, yeah, you're right. It was very reminiscent of sitting down at your CV and being like, uh, you know, what what is your what is your uh, weakest trait? That sort of thing. <laughs> I work too hard, Elliot. Well, that's just the answer. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of break it down into some positive traits, some neutral traits, and some negative traits about myself, and and kind of tried to find a implement from that. So for the positive traits, I wrote down quite observant, likes collecting knowledge, quite direct, which I know is going to translate into some kind of phallic symbol, of course, because <laughs> that's just the way these implements seem to yeah, go. Um, that was what we learned uh, in the last chapter, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
it has to either be directly phallic or directly not phallic. There's no in between. <laughs> um, so for kind of neutral traits, I thought if I was a practitioner, I would really dig the dramatic aspect. <laughs> and so I would want something that kind of stands out that says a bit of a like, hey, I'm I'm doing this a little bit differently. Um, yeah. And for the negative traits, I put that I, I would possibly be quite single-minded. Like if I was going to... F- if I was going to be a practitioner, I would very much like focus on something, dive down the rabbit hole and, and chase that down. So, you know, in an extent that's good, that's blunt, that's to the point. But the the negative of that is probably getting a bit tunnel visioned and, and not focusing on the kind of holistic picture. Yeah, sure. So putting that all together, I thought, you know, observant, collecting knowledge, direct, showy and single-minded. I thought what, what I came up with was a spyglass. So a little, a little mini telescope, right? Um, oh, yeah. Which kind of makes sense. For the declarative, it's observant, but only when pointed at one direction. So it, it has the potential to gather information about something or to focus on something, but miss things if you're not looking in the right place. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pointed directly at something. It's very direct. It's blunt. It's, it's phallic. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of suggests this, uh, this mindset of observe, plan, then act, and kind of stick sure. to that rigidity there. Um, the sociocultural, I had no idea... <laughs> <laughs> to do this it was a difficult one yeah so so we, we sort of tried to do the declarative authoritative and socio-cultural for our implements yeah. and that was the hardest um, one for sure the socio-cultural yeah thinking about it you know obviously it was an actual practical tool back in the day when boats were a thing um <laughs> nowadays it's probably not that useful and so that felt like it fit the kind of showy nature uh practitioners that use it would probably be pretty showboaty because it's basically just a worse version of binoculars um <laughs> yeah I, and that's kind of what i came to yeah so i came up with a spyglass i felt that that was a pretty appropriate implement yeah sort of going to my approach i sort of did the same thing as you sort of trying to look at, at how i worked and stuff um and, and personally i tend to work best when there's sort of regularity like when i schedule things like i like to plan out everything um, and if mm. I don't sort of make like a to-do list or a schedule for myself, I often like don't really get anything done. Um, yeah. I also struggle to start things, but once I've started, I get like a really good rhythm and I'm in the zone. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes like th- this would sort of be the, the weakness column, I guess. Uh, I have a tendency to focus so much on doing things properly that sometimes I may not, or I, I get in the way of doing them at all just because I'm trying, I'm so focused on trying to do it the best way that uh, it ends up taking longer. Um, mm. So put all that together and what have you got uh i went with a metronome um mm. i thought declaratively it sort of suggests this idea of like rhythm predictability but like f- practice as well because obviously a-, a metronome is like a practicing tool for for musicians yeah. um it's also quite like going back to the phallic conversation you just brought up it's pro- like I-, I don't think it's very phallic i i don't know mm. um but they're, they're definitely quite unwieldy, and it probably suggests that if I'm thrown off my axis, you know, like if you tip a metronome over, mm. completely blows it up. Um, it's done, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so that's probably the negative part of the declarative. Um, mm. and, and so for authoritative, which um, I, we should probably go over, like declarative was sort of what it suggests <laughs> to yeah, other practitioners, point. right? Um, yeah, what it kind of suggests about you based off of what the tool is. Yeah, and then authoritative is how how it would affect what you actually do. Yeah, when you use it to use magic or whatever, uh, how does it impact that? Yeah, and so I thought like, the authoritative, like I, I've always been drawn to, you know, when when we read things like Worm or, or talk about practitioners and stuff, 
I I'm always drawn to the the idea of like the masterminds, the behind the scenes people who plan stuff and then execute like the big plans. And I think a metronome kind of lines up with all of that. Um, like you're you're a bit indirect. Um, like the metronome itself is indirect. It's just assisting the music, that sort of thing. Um, mm. and then for sociocultural, I, again, this was the hard one. I I, yeah. I just associate metronomes with classical music and classical music with posh people. So I kind yeah. of assumed that. Like you know, the sociocultural is meant to be the category for like what sorts of practitioners use this, and I yep. assume it's it's probably practitioners who are you know the reserved, quiet ones who sit in the background and maintain the order. Yep. Yeah. It 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 kind of evokes ideas of the traditional to me. Uh, yeah. From a exactly. Of like socially, but also maybe like having a, a lineage or family of practitioners, right? Like an old yeah. money kind of family. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, if there's all any old money family practitioners looking to adopt me, I'm available. <laughs> I'm open. I'm open for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was a, a a bit of a different pick for a for a little bit of additional content there, but um, we thought it was a fun one, and we'd love to hear what what people th- see in themselves or in other well-known figures that they can translate into implements. It's a fun little exercise. Um, yeah, and, and I think we'll try and, you know, if we get some good ones, we'll, we'll try and highlight them in our next episode. Yep, sounds good. Um, speaking of our next episode, that will be <laughs> another interlude. That's uh, Damages2.y, which is coming out on the 11th in uh, not too long, not too many days to wait. Yes, that's Monday, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to uh, find that episode, well, you can find it on our new home, doofmedia.com uh speaking of doof uh you know if you subscribe to the doof patreon account at patreon.com slash doof media um that directly supports our show as well as a number of other great shows that are on the doof network yeah and speaking of patreon patreon i think uh i've been reading somewhere that patreon is about to kind of up their cut that they take from uh patrons so if you are supporting any any uh, patrons like the doof patreon or the uh, wild bows patreon who writes these beautiful stories for us to explore please do take some time to check out your donation and say, hey, maybe it's time that I could update this. Or if you're not a patron, check it out. It's pretty cheap and you get access to a whole bunch of cool things and you help uh, you help us make shows that we want to make. So it's a win-win. Yeah. Um, so there will also be a discussion thread where, uh, as we've mentioned, you can tell us all about uh, implements you think would suit people. Uh, and that'll be in the show notes uh, associated with this episode. Now, I don't know what kind of prize we would give, but I'm going to give at least a, a great shout out to my favorite answer in the discussion <laughs> thread, especially if it's of a pop culture character that I really like. So <laughs> that's the challenge. That's the homework. Okay. Um, and that's everything. We'll, we'll see you back here in a few days for Damages 2.Y. See ya. See ya.